Let me just be reminding you the fact that uh, last week we, we began in the book of Esther, and it was more of an introductory to it because the fact is, is that many of us, you, you crack open the book of Esther, and you find that uh, although maybe you've heard it before, you've maybe never explored it in great detail, but uh, it's a, a, an incredible book when you look at the details behind it because uh, what makes it so unique is the fact that God's name is never mentioned in the book. And the reason why that's such a big deal is that uh, there's many commentators that actually wouldn't even cover the book of Esther because God's name's not mentioned in it. But the fact is, is that when you cut out the book of Esther, you're missing one of the greatest pictures and one of the greatest lessons that you can discover is the fact that God's at work even when you don't see what he's doing. And uh, I think that that is such a valuable thing for us to recognize. You know, I was uh, reading this past week. I was telling my Sunday school class about that this morning and talking about everything that's going on with the coronavirus and those things. Well, I was reading an article about a group of Americans, 14 Americans, they went over on a trip to Israel. And uh, what had happened was the leader of the group was taking them into Palestine. He was trying to take them over in to see the city of Bethlehem. And uh, he thought he had booked a, a room at a specific hotel, a nice one. And uh, come to find out, it was totally booked up. He, they get there with their group of 14, and they said, we're sorry we can't take you, we're booked up. And so he goes on to a more economical one, a, a cheaper one, that's what I mean. And so he goes there to that place, and come to find out, there was somebody inside that hotel that had the coronavirus. And they ended up being quarantined. Now, can you imagine that guy's wife? You thought you booked this hotel? There was no room for them in the end at Bethlehem, so they had to change hotels. That's horrible. And so what happened was is that they had to change places. Come to find out, I read the name of the guy. It was my youth pastor growing up. I'm like, oh, man. So I get on his Facebook page and look at it. He's posting all these pictures with these face masks and all of that. And I'm just sitting there thinking, oh, man, poor guy. And he's sitting there talking about, well, you know, we have a lot to be thankful for, the very spiritual, you know, side of it. Thank God we haven't gotten it yet. Nobody's tested positive. I felt horrible for him. But um, tonight as we get into the book of Esther, you guys, that has absolutely nothing to do with it. But the point is that uh, the fact is, is you look at things like this and there's nothing that's an accident to God. Absolutely nothing. Uh, what we covered this morning, if you get the chance, you ought to go back and listen if you weren't here, because what we covered this morning is specifically dealing with what's happened in our area. We looked at the book of Job, and we discovered the fact that, listen, suffering is such an important part of the Christian life. Think about this, and, and I didn't mention it this morning. I want to say certain things, and you guys, like the gift of a pastor is they never run out of stuff to say. And the thing is, is that I was thinking about the fact that I want you to think about people in the Bible. And if you remove suffering from every story of the Bible, what would you have? I mean, there would be absolutely, if you remove the low lows, you don't have the high highs. If you remove all the pain and the suffering, listen, uh, you uh, have uh, experienced something that robs life of its richness. You recognize that, right? Uh, and you're like, well, I still don't want suffering. I, I, I understand that mentality. But the fact of the matter is where God meets us in the most deepest and rich way is in the middle of our suffering. Now, what we're going to do tonight is this. I want us to, to look at Esther chapter 1. We're going to get into this book. 
And I want to start off by reading something that was written by Charles Swindoll. He, he had a, a, such a great introduction. I was like, you know what? I don't think I'm going to compete with that. Let's just, uh, I'm going to read you what he said about this. Fantastic words. He says, God is the specialist in turning the mundane into the meaningful. Most of our day being uh, begins rather predictable. We often feel like it's just another day. It's no big deal. Days don't begin with God writing in the sky about what's going to happen each day. Days often don't start off with us seeing the movements of God. We don't always sense God's presence or even, an audible, uh, even audibly hear his voice. Those are great words. Most of our days, they start off mundane. It's just the same regular routine. We don't see what God's doing. God doesn't start off our day by saying, this is what's going to happen today. We would love for God to start off that way, wouldn't we? To know all the things that are going to happen in any given day. But most days begin uneventful. Uh, they're un, they're un, but what can happen is, is that uneventful, even regular and normal days can turn to be incredible days. And the reason why that is, is that so many times in our life, we don't recognize what God's doing. Have you ever, you, you, you've come to the realization to recognize that most of the time in your life, you have absolutely zero idea of what God's doing at any given moment. There's a word for that. God's transcendent. He's infinite. His mind is far beyond ours. It says his ways are past finding out. And the fact is, is that because of that and because we're finite, we don't know what God's doing. And so many times our days we wake up and it's just a regular day, a normal day, that behind the scenes God can quietly be moving an infinite number of things all around the universe and you have absolutely zero awareness of what's going on. Think about that. Now, why that's so important is that so, many, so much of our life just seems regular. But the fact is, is that when you take into account the fact that God's behind the scenes, he's moving bits and pieces, pieces of the puzzle you don't even recognize are there, and he's putting them in such a way that everything's going to work out according to his will and according to his plan, his will is never, ever fails. It never is uh, uh, unsuccessful, we should say, Right? His will is always accomplished, always. And so as we get into this passage, you're going to see that God's moving in ways and, and even in times where people don't even recognize it, in regular ordinary days. As a matter of fact, uh, you could look throughout Scripture, you could survey the Bible, and you would find that a lot of days start off as regular days that turn out to be unimaginable days. You, what do you mean by that? Well, let's think of a few things that happened in Scripture and see how God can take the mundane and he can make it miraculous. Think of a man like Moses. You remember Moses, he spent 40 years, his life is easily divided out. 40 years that he spent in Egypt, 40 years he goes out into the wilderness. And you remember he's out there taking care of sheep. It was just a regular day, a day where he always was taking care of the flock that he was tending to. And he's walking in the wilderness. And all of a sudden, just on the regular day, he comes in contact with what? A burning bush. As he comes in and he sees this burning bush and, and he's told to, he's standing on holy ground. And he's given this unbelievable task that God gives him. 
He says, I want you to be tasked with going and setting my people free. Moses is like, who am I? I I can't speak. And, And one of the great statements that God makes to Moses is not, Moses, you're an incredible man. You should go speak for me. God never says that to him. He said, who created your mouth to speak? He said, well, who should I tell them that sent me? Tell them that the I am sent you. Folks, days that start off normal can turn extraordinary because so many times we don't know what God's doing. Think of a young man named David. David's out in the Judean hillside taking care of a flock of sheep. Uh, there's nothing more boring than that, I imagine. That's why he wrote so many songs, right? And so here he is, he's tending these sheep, and he's watching them, and little does he know what's going on uh, down at his family's house that the prophet has come to find the next king, and uh, he was the one that was left out. Thanks, Dad, for such high uh, uh, expectations of what your son can accomplish. And so the prophet uh, sends for him, and he comes back in, and he finds out what? David, God's chosen you to be the next king because God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the inner heart, the inner man. Folks, it was just a regular day. You look at other ones. We could mention the birth of Jesus Christ. I mean, who in Judea was ready for Jesus to be born? Jesus was born on a regular, unextraordinary, mundane day where nobody was looking for it. But little did the people in Jerusalem know that just less than maybe uh, two or three miles away, The Savior of the world was being born, and the world would forever be changed on a day that it was unexpected. You could go uh, even further along. You look at the resurrection of Christ. He had been crucified, placed in a tomb on a Friday, and they had the, the guards that they put at his tomb for 24 hours. And little did they know that on a regular day, on a Sunday morning early, Jesus Christ would rise again from the dead. He would be resurrected on the Easter Sunday morning. It was a regular day. Nobody was expecting it. Can I tell you that there's still another day that's going to come in the future? The day when Jesus Christ is going to come back again to rapture the church, his beloved, his own, out of this world. And folks, I believe that scriptural-wise it's going to happen on a regular day. Folks, never underestimate just the mundane. One of the great things about being a believer is that God does things that are unexpected, unplanned for, the things that you would never imagine, the things that uh, you can't even wrap your mind around. Look at your own life. I can think of events that happened in my life where I was devastated because certain things didn't work out the way that I thought they would, only to find out, man, I'm so glad that that didn't work out. Because in my mind, uh, everything was messed up when it didn't go according to my plans, only to find out that God's plans were infinitely better. Have you ever found that? And what we see in, in this book is that what happens with Esther is just a regular day, folks. A normal day where you would never have thought that God would put everything in just the right place at just the right time. And in such a way that only God would get glory. Just a regular little orphan girl was going to go all the way from being a no-name that nobody knew about and would end up ascending all the way up to be the queen of a foreign country called Persia. And it was just a regular day because God was doing things behind the scenes that nobody saw.
I hope that that brings encouragement to you because today uh, I believe that there's many people, even in this room, you're probably hurting and you're wondering what God's doing. And you feel like, you know, it's just another day that you wake up and you just haven't seen God do anything with it. The thing you've been praying about for weeks, maybe even months, and you sit there and you think, well, it's just another day. And you keep losing heart over the fact you wonder whether God's going to do something with it. Can I tell you that God does something in just regular days? And folks, right now you might not even see it, but God could be doing 10,000 things and you would only see three of them. Maybe even none of them. So what I want us to do is we're going to look at the life of this young woman named Esther. It began on an ordinary day. And just like that, God sets things in motion and he begins to place this young woman in an incredible place at just the right time, listen, to preserve God's people. He was going to allow, the, what was going to happen was is there was going to be a man that was going to have a plot in place to kill and eliminate God's people. And God is going to begin to move things into just the right place at just the right time that Esther would go up to be the queen in order that she could appeal to the king and that he would begin to put a plan in place to save God's people and it happened on a regular day when nobody expected it. God set things in motion because God's will is never frustrated, ever. So let's look at this passage together. Let's first of all, and you're going to have to stay with me tonight. And I, I know you guys get nervous when a pastor tells you to stay with him. But you, uh, in, in all honesty, people, you read the first chapter, Esther chapter 1, and you're like, what could God possibly be doing in Esther 1? Well, you won't see his name there. But you have to look at the hidden glimpses that you get behind the scenes. You following me? And uh, to be honest with you, us as God's people, most of the time, we're horrible at seeing God move around us, right? We, we don't even glimpse it. We don't even see it. But you have to look behind the setting and you'll see there's absolutely no way that all that could take place apart from God's hand moving it into place and making sure it happens. By the way, that's the same way that God works in our life, right? Now let's look at this first one, a casual glimpse into the Persian palace. Let's look at uh, verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over 107 and 20 provinces. That's 127 provinces. It's a mundane historical account. You read this and you think, there's nothing special there. It's just talking about a king named Ahasuerus. This king, by the way, his name is Xerxes. That's his name. Ahasuerus is his title. It's like Caesar. It's like king. It's like Pharaoh, okay? Ahasuerus is a title. His real name is Xerxes. And so here he is, another king in another kingdom and another day, another time, just normal, right? Nothing special there. But notice that it, it, verses 2 and 3. It says that in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the palace, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and servants and the power of Persia, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles, the princes of the provinces, being before him. Now notice it says that he was in what year of his reign? Third year. 
He's going to have this elaborate banquet that he's going to bring forward. Now, did you notice how long it's going to be for? It's going to be 180 days. It's going to be a six-month-long party. Can you imagine that? The king, he's inviting all the elite, the upper class, the ones with the money. And he's going to bring them into his palace, and he's going to have this incredible wedding. I, I was sitting there thinking, now... Think about how much money it would cost for him to pay for all these people to eat and, and to party and to drink. Now, these, these are pagans, folks, okay? So don't be shocked when we talk about they're drinking, they're partying, they're dancing, there's parades. And, and the whole thing, the whole reason why they're doing it is this. Ahasuerus is putting his, his glory, his majesty on display. He wants everybody to see how wealthy he was. That's the reason why. He, he's gathering all of these upper elites because he wants to show them what? You see how much money I got? You look at all this stuff. He's showing them his palace. Uh, he's providing everything that they could possibly need so that they could live life to the fullest extent. There would be wild dancing. There would be eating. There would be people getting drunk. There's people singing praises uh, about how incredible this king was. As a matter of fact, they found inscriptions, and I think I shared this with y'all last week, but he, he said this about himself. Listen to this. Very prideful. He said, the great, I am the great king, the king of kings, the king of the lands occupied by many races, the king of this great earth. He had that inscribed on his throne. Not a uh, humble man. But his party is there to talk about how great he is. Now stay with me. Go down to verse number five and you'll see he has a second group, another party. And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan, the palace, both unto the great and to the small seven days and the court of the garden of the king's palace. Now notice what he does. He Initially he has this party for the elites. The next party is for who? It's for people that were both great and small, meaning it's for the ones that had a lot of money, the ones that what, didn't have much. And he opens up his gates and basically allows everybody, tens of thousands, to come into his palace. And he's going to pay for all of their partying, all their food, all their drinking, and he's going to pay for all of that. What does that show you about this king? He's got a lot of money, and man, he is wasting a lot of it in order to have all these banquets. Why is he doing it? He's trying to show that he's greater than any of the other kings they've ever known. Look down at verse number six and seven. It says, where, uh, it describes the palace. He says, where were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to the silver rings and pillars of marble? And the beds were of gold and silver and upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black and marble. Look down at verse 7. And they gave them drink and vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse from one another, and royal wine in abundance and according to the state of the king. Listen, folks, for seven days he is he's, uh, pulling back everything. He's having everybody drink from gold vessels. He didn't buy, and notice that it says they were different vessels. He didn't buy everything at the same store. He didn't buy a set. I mean, he's like diversifying. He's showing like the handcraft, every little detail. Uh, the palace was in top condition. And you keep going. Look at verse 8. 
And the drinking was according to the law. None did compel, for so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. So they allowed people to drink as much or as little as they wanted to. If they wanted to get drunk, go for it. If they didn't, okay, you, you do what you want to do. But all of this was to display his majesty and his riches. But something important was missing at the party. He didn't have his queen with him. I want you to notice, look down at verse 9. It says, Also Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. You read all of this, and what do you think? You're like, Ryan, I, I think absolutely nothing about what You think there's this grand banquet that's taking place. A king that is soaking in the glory of everybody seeing how much money he has. Little does he know there's a greater king, a king that sits on a throne of the universe, that's moving things quietly into place. And folks, most of us, we don't even see it. You're like, what do you mean? Inside on this regular day of this banquet, God is going to begin to move things into place so that there would be this divide that would happen between a king and a queen. And folks, it's a, just a normal day. It's unexpected. It's a pivotal moment. And folks, there's pivotal moments in our lives that we don't see. Do you know that? There's things that happen in our life that we don't even notice. I can think of times in my life. I can remember there was a time where I thought, man, there was this incredible opportunity in Thailand. We had some friends of ours that were living in the area, and uh, they were missionaries with Word of Life. We were close with them. Uh, just loved getting together with their family. And we had these plans about how we were going to start this specific ministry in an area together. And we took time into going and visit buildings, looking how much it would cost. And, I mean, we were, like, highly invested in all of this. And little did we know that while we were gone and we were on uh, furlough and we were reporting to other churches that there were things in place that we didn't even know that were working where their hearts were changing and we didn't know about it. We get back from being on furlough. We come back to Thailand and we find out the fact that they've decided that they want to do something different. And we're just like, it blindsided us. We're sitting there, you know, what is going on? How could all of this happen? But folks, quietly behind the scenes, we didn't know it, but there was a small group of people that were having a, a, a part, a, not a party, they were having a Bible study in Banbung, all right? Uh, you guys are like, Banbung, all right, okay, that's the name of a city. And so in that place, God was quietly working that they needed somebody to come down and help this small church plant get going, and God was working in ways that we never even saw behind the scenes. Folks, that's exactly what's happening here, is that at this banquet, when people least expect it, God's going to come through. He's going to begin to put it in just the right place, just like he's setting in, in order. Now, notice the second thing, a royal conflict and a royal edict. Now, this gets a little interesting. Very funny section of scripture that's about to happen. Look at what he says, what happens in verses 10 and 11. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, you know what that means. He was drunk. All right. Uh, he commanded Mahum, Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zethar, I love this name, Carcass, 
And then the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the royal crown to show the people and the princes her beauty for she was fair to look on. Now, here's, they're having this big party and he's getting drunk. He's losing his ability to uh, think, okay, because uh, a guy that thinks would never make this kind of request. But he calls on his chamberlains. These are his his, his counselors, the ones that he trusted, he called them in and he says, guys, I want you to go call my wife. And I want you to tell her to wear the crown. And we're going to bring her in here and we're going to show her off. I want everybody to see how beautiful she is. Now, what happens here, uh, there is a lot of debate about what happens in this passage. Some people think that uh, scholars believe that maybe the king's meaning was she was to come unveiled, meaning there was nothing over her face. People could see her beauty. Uh, most people actually interpret it that the king was having her to come in and do a dance, all right, with just her headdress for everybody to see. And what ends up happening is that because all of this happens uh, with the king, there is a scandal. The, the king is calling for her to come in and to do this in front of everybody. Now notice what happens in verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very what? Very wroth. And his anger burned in him. By the way, that's like he's like a volcano. He's about to go off. The queen rejects him says, no way, big boy, I'm not doing that. You might have set your plans high. You might be drinking. But listen, one of the things that happens here is this woman is courageous. She's not somebody that we talk about very often. Have you ever heard anybody do a message on Queen Vashti? I've never heard that. This woman uh, is not going to compromise, and she's not going to put herself out there like her husband wants her to. And she's not going to use that relationship and be able to parade herself in front of all these people. And she was a woman of character from what we see in this passage, bold enough to look at her husband who was a king and tell him what? Ain't happening. Not going to happen. I, I will not put myself out there in front of them. And Queen Vashti, she's admirable, right? The fact that she would look at somebody and she would be willing to tell him no. Folks, how many people you think would tell the king no? Not very many people. She's willing to look him in the face and say, hey, the greatest, uh, the one with the most power in the universe at this point, the man that was like uh, the head of Washington, D.C. of his day, she looked at him and although he could conquer kingdoms, uh, he, he could never buy off or even make her compromise her character by parading herself in front of people that way. Pretty imp impressive when you think about it, right? She looks at him and tells him, not going to happen. Now look at what happens in verses 13 and 15, through 15. Now this is where it gets interesting, folks, because you understand that when a queen tells a king no, uh, everybody begins to panic. The king is ticked off. He's like, oh, hold on a second. Uh, I, I wasn't asking. I was telling. And all these guys begin to scramble, and I think it's hilarious here what's going to happen because the guys are looking at it and thinking, Man, if all of our wives band together and they begin to tell us no, man, we are going to have a major rebellion in Persia. All the women are going to be rebelling on us, and there's going to be this human, huge women's right movement within Persia. And before you know it, they'll be ruling everything. 
Now, that's exactly what happens here. Look at what happens in verses 13 through 15. It says, Then the king said to the wise men, which knew the times, says, For so was the king's manner towards all that knew the law and judgment. And the next unto him was uh, Karshena, Shestar, um, Admantha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, Memakan, the seven princes of Persia and Media. So these were the, the higher ups. These were the rulers of the different areas of Persia and Media. Now, notice what happens. Which saw the king's face, which sat the first in the kingdoms. What shall we do unto the queen Vashti according to the law? Because she has not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by the chamberlains. He's like, what are we going to do to pay her back for what she's done? She's told you no. You can't tell a king no and not pay for it. And so what's going to happen is, is that you know like what any good king would do. He puts people around him that will tell him yes all the time, right? That will tell him whatever his heart desires. So here you got these advisors and they're saying, what's our game plan? Because if we don't do something about this right now, we're going to have an issue on our hands. The women are going to rebel. Our, our wives are not going to listen to us anymore. As if they weren't already. I'm just joking. All right, I threw that in. Now, let's look at verses 16 through 18. Look at what he does. And Mimikin answered before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen hath not done wrong to the king only. Now, you see what they're beginning to do there. He's like, maybe, uh, maybe we could slip something in about our wives. And he could take care of the issue for us because if the king puts his royal signet down on this, buddy, our wives don't have a choice about it. They're going to have to listen. So they're going to bring their own personal issues into play. Now follow along. He says what, uh, so he, he, he goes on and he says, For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all the women so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes and when it shall be reported. The king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti, the queen, to be brought in before him, but she came not. Verse 18, likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Media say this day unto all the king's princes which have heard of the deed of the queen, and thus shall there be arise too much contempt and wrath. What does Memekin do? This guy is brilliant. Let's just give him credit for where credit's due. He says, how about this? We want, to put a, 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 we want to put a display on of showing the king's power. You need to come down heavy on Vashti. You need to banish her. And when you do that, what's going to happen is you're going to make the lives of all of us, your princes, even better because our wives will be afraid of us and they'll have to respect us. Now, if you have to command your wife, uh, you can't command something like that. You think they're going to listen to the creed of a king? Now, folks, you guys are following along this, and you're like, Ryan, man, this seems like all of these details, it's just so much. But quietly behind the scenes, God's going to use the conflict that's happening here to do what? To move Esther, this unknown girl that we haven't even been introduced to yet, that doesn't even know the king, that has nothing to do with the king's palace, is going to do all of this in order to move her in at just the right time, at just the right place. So they come up with this plan. Uh, she's stubborn, and if she's stubborn, it's going to catch on, and all our wives will be stubborn. They're comparing notes with their, about their wives. Guys, not a good thing to do. 
And they're just sitting down and they're having uh, lunch probably and they're saying, you know, my wife, she's going to really kick back on this. It's not going to be good for me. And the other guys are like, yeah, yeah, my wife will be the same way. And so they're, they're, these guys that are politicians, they're working to get what they want to accomplish, be accomplished. Now notice what happens. Look at verse 19. And uh, don't you love the way they word it? If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Medes and the Persians that it be not altered, so nobody could change it. That Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. Now look at that. He said, I got a great plan. Let's ban her from the kingdom. We're going to do away with her, and we're going to throw her out, and we're going to bring another one in. And what's going to happen is is that's going to send a lesson to all the women. Never, ever say another bad word or tell your husband no ever again. We got an amen there. Thank you, sir. (laughs) And his wife sitting next to him. All right, and so what happened was is that you see this, right? He's banding together to try to, to come up with a plan that will help him out. But listen, and all of this, where's Esther? She's not even in she's not even in the picture, folks. God can take even pagan and wicked things that go on where there's a party and a banquet, and he can work even in the midst of a pagan, people that don't even know him. He can be working in their hearts to accomplish certain things so that his will and his plan is accomplished at just the right time. Can I tell you that so much of the things that happen in our life, they don't happen in our timing? You know, in our mind, if God knows about something and if he's working on something, it ought to happen when? Right now. God's plans don't work like our plans. God, uh, he works in his own time because he has his own time frame. He's not a slave to our time. He works when he's ready to move. And folks, as hard as it is to wait and to trust, the problem is, is that we like to have control, don't we? Any control freaks out there? Nobody, a bunch of liars too, and I'm just joking. All right, so what we have is this, is that, man, uh, we like to have some kind of sense that we're controlling the things going on around us. But in reality, Esther doesn't even have this on her radar. She doesn't even have any idea that God is going to bring her and elevate her to the scene that she's about to come on to. And can I tell you, if you're here and you're waiting, folks, God's timing is always perfect. You can never rush it. It always comes through at just the right time. And, folks, uh, it's always better that his plan works in his own timing anyway. It's so important for all of us to get to the point where we recognize that and we can wait. Folks, I hate waiting. Do you hate waiting? And Nashville's not getting better. You got a tornado that came, I mean, like it. 65 and Briley Parkway are basically a parking lot now. And folks, waiting is difficult, isn't it? But folks, God moves uh, even behind the scenes in our waiting. If you don't believe me, look at verse 19. Let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. You want to make it really clear and plain? Exit Vashti, enter who? 
Esther. What I'm trying to prove to you is this, is that God can change things just like that. He doesn't need a lot of time. He can be moving things into place even before you know it. I was thinking about somebody here recently. Their child was going through some incredibly difficult things, things that no parent would ever want to go through. And uh, they had gone through some testing. Uh, they had known that he had gone through many different treatments for what he was going through. And they called me up, and, and I can remember when I got the message, he said, Ryan, I wanted to let you know that he's been cleared by the doctors. God's answered the prayer. <clears throat> Folks, just like that, God can change things. And we have absolutely no idea that it's even going to happen. In our mind, we're thinking, God, how could you not move quicker? The more I've matured in, in my faith, the more I've come to realize it's better to wait for his timing. Queen Esther has no idea what's transpiring in front of her. Esther's going to, uh, it's going to go all the way from uh, a nobody all the way up to the second highest person. And, and this is the, how God's sovereignty works. He works in remarkable ways, working behind the scenes, moving and pushing, rearranging events, and, and changing minds until it brings out even exactly what God wants to happen at exactly the right time, even in pagan cult culture that we could never imagine. One of my favorite verses, Isaiah 55, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. How could you begin to measure that if you were going to put an estimate on it, that, that his thoughts are higher than the heavens? For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. How high is that? You couldn't put a number on it. Folks, how could we ever begin to comprehend what God's doing behind the scenes? Now, what I want us to see is that behind Mummikin's ideas of changing out Vashti and moving in Esther is the plans that God is working in order to bring about something God wants to accomplish. Now, look at these, verses 20 through 22. Let's look at these. And when the king's decree, which he uh, shall make, shall be published throughout all this empire... For this is great. All the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both to the great and the small. And they the saying, please, the king and the princes. And the king did according to the word of Mummikin. Now look at that. That's just pitiful. They think that that's actually going to work, that it's going to bring everything into place. But folks, listen. God is going to even use uh, these pagan men that are trying to accomplish a purpose for uh, making their wives obey them, even though it's not going to work. Uh, they're going to bring all of this together. Folks, God can take even stupid ideas, all right, and he can work it out in such a way that it accomplishes his purpose. One of my favorite passages is Proverbs 21, verse 1. It says this, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Even a pagan king that thinks he's making decisions still has no idea that God's the one that's turning his heart 
to make a specific decision that's going to lead to the accomplishment of his will. Now, folks, we have to finish this up quickly, so stick with me, all right? What we want to do is we're going to move into this next section, but I want you to see that God is the one that's working behind all of this. There's a lonely king and an obscure woman. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, after these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. Now, look at that section, and, and what I want you to, you're going to see something incredible. It says, after these things. After what things? Yeah, after sobering up, he got his mind straightened out. As a matter of fact, when you look at this chapter, this is very key for you understanding this book. Pay attention to this part. After these things, if you were to go down and you look at Esther chapter 2, verse 16, look down at that verse. Notice that it says, so Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus into his house, the royal, in the 10th month, which was the month of Tebeth, in the what year of his reign? Seventh. When you go back to Esther chapter 1, verse 1, it says that Ahasuerus was in his third year. So what does that mean? We put that math together and what you have, folks, is incredible. There's a four-year gap that's happened there. You're like, well, after these things is describing what? He's describing something that people of that day would understand. The king had been gone for a while. What happened? Well, if you go back in history, you know what uh, King Ahasuerus had done? He, he's known as King Xerxes. He, he had a foolish plan that he had in place. Listen to this. He decided he was going to go and try to fight against Greece. And you know what he did? He failed. You remember the, the Battle of Thermopylae? We talked about that last week. You had the Spartans, the 300, that held off the over, some people think, upwards to 100,000 people for many days. All right, well, he lost terribly when he tried to conquer Greece. It didn't work out for him. When he comes back home, it says after these things, that's what he's talking about is the fact that after these things, he comes home and he's lonely. He has no wife. He banished Vashti already, right? He comes, he comes back and he, he, he has no wife. Well, I mean, he, as king, he, he could have anybody that he wanted. But the fact is, is that he comes back and he doesn't have a, a wife. He doesn't have somebody that cares about the things that he's going through. And so at just the right time, what's happening is the king's, begin, uh, the, the king's workers begin to put things into place. Follow along with me. Look down at verse 2. Then, the king's, uh, then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, let there be fair young virgins that are sought for the king. They come up with a plan to try to encourage the king. He's depressed. He's just lost the war. And he needs to find himself a wife. And so they say, well, why don't we find you a wife? So look down at verses 3 through 4. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace to the house of the women and unto the custody of Hedge, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, and let their things for purification be given to them. And let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen uh, instead of Vashti. And the thing pleased the king, and he did so. Of course it pleased him. He's like, you know, what we're going to have is we're going to have this beauty pageant. We're going to have Miss Persia, and I'm going to have the best-looking woman in Persia. And he says, I think that's a great idea. Let's go forward with it. And so he moves on and, and he goes on. Let's have this pageant. And they're going to have a year, folks, one year for these ladies to prepare themselves for the pageant. 
I could say a lot of things, but I'm a smart man and I'm going to move on. Look at verse 12. All right, it says, Now when every maid's turn was come to her to go into King Hazarus, after that she had been 12 months, according to the manner of the women. For so were the days of their purifications accomplished, to wit, six months with the oil of myrrh, and six months with sweet odors, and with the other things, the purifying of the woman. Okay, so it's going to be an entire year process where they're just like, they're going to smell incredible, okay? They're going to basically sit and soak and smell good and work on their beauty and make sure that they're in the top-notch condition for when they stand in front of the king. Now, one of the pivotal moments begins to take place. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now, in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite who had carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jehoniah, uh, I mean, I can't even say that, king of Judah, with whom the Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. Now notice that it happens in Sushan, the palace, where there was a certain Jew, an obscure person, were introduced to a man named Mordecai. Mordecai was the cousin of Esther, the older cousin, and he was going to be the one that was going to take care of her. Now look at verse 7, and we're going to be done. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. Hadassah, her name means myrtle, like a myrtle tree. Hadassah is her Jewish name. Esther is her Persian name. Esther means star. Now, what I want to do by closing this down is that, does she know anything about what's going on? Esther has absolutely, it's not even on her radar. She's never been experienced to politics. She's never even uh, been met the king before. But we're introduced to her, and it says that she's a beautiful woman. Who gave her the beauty? God gave it to her. Who had her be raised by this man named Mordecai? God did. Who recognized Esther before this uh, Miss Persia pageant? Nobody. She was totally unnoticed. Nobody could have named her anywhere. But folks, even in obscurity and even when you're unknown, God sees you. God knows what's going on and he can twist and turn and move things just as he wants to to accomplish everything that he needs to. And he's going to see the heart of this woman that he's prepared. Why do we know that she was prepared? Folks, look at me. You cannot be an orphan and grow up like she did and not be a woman of character. To make it like she did without her parents, to experience the heartache, God had formed her specifically for the task that was at hand. How could you explain the rise of a woman that nobody even knows? Folks, the only way it could be is what? God can take things that happen on ordinary days when it's least expected. He can twist and turn anything so that the pieces of the puzzle match up just perfectly. Can I tell you this? Look up here, and we're going to close with this. I want to make it extremely practical. I don't care who you are in this room, in this auditorium this evening. I don't know what you're facing or what you're going through. But, folks, if God can move things that are happening in a foreign country 
so that just the right woman is going to rise up to power, to be in a position where she can save God's people. Do you think the things that you're going through in your life are anything for God to deal with? Most of the things that we struggle with is that we want control. Listen, folks, we'll never be in control. But I got good news for you. All of us serve a God that is in control, and he sits on a throne, even a throne that's even higher than a pagan king to accomplish the things that he wants to get his will accomplished. And, folks, when God moves, nobody can stop it. It's like a train that's unstoppable. You could never do anything to, to halt it or alter it. It's going to go in the direction it's going to go, and it's going to accomplish exactly what God wants to happen. And, folks, the greatest thing that you can do is this. Rest in the fact that God is going to orchestrate them exactly the way that he wants, and you rest your head on that. And I'm going to say this one last time because it's, it's been so impactful for me. The softest pillow for you to rest your head on at night when you're stressed out and you're worried about things is the pillow of God's sovereignty. You can rest your head on the fact that no matter what happens in your life, God's always good. Even he can take bad things and he can work them together for your good. For those that love God and for those that are called according to his purpose. Folks, listen, God's good. And whatever you're struggling with, know that God can work it out, even the minute details, so that it happens even when you least expect it. God's a big God. I want to ask that we would just bow our heads. We're going to close in a word of prayer.